And also this morning is a bit different because we have three services and I'm speaking at all three, so that means that once I've finished speaking here, I'll be jumping in a car and heading down to our other congregation at 5.02 and then jumping in a car and coming back afterwards to speak here at 11.30, so I won't be around at the end this morning. We are, as Vic said, in a new series on the cross. We're looking at eight different facets or images of the cross and a book which I found particularly helpful in preparing for this series is uh, called The Crucifixion by a theologian called Fleming Rutledge and uh, lent heavily on what she writes in that book in preparation for this series. And our theme today is the blood sacrifice, the blood sacrifice. Jesus' blood atones for us. And our text is from the letter to the Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers and sisters... Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water." Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. It is by the blood of Jesus. Now, the blood of Jesus and his sacrifice is imagery and language which is used a lot in the New Testament. Luke, in the book of Acts, tells us that it is by the blood of Christ that he has purchased the church. The Apostle Paul tells us in the letter to the Colossians that it is by the blood of Christ that he has made peace, that we have been reconciled to God. The Apostle Peter tells us that the blood is precious, and by it we have been ransomed. And the writer to the Hebrews speaks much about the blood of Jesus and how by it we are purified and made holy. And actually in the New Testament, the phrase, the blood of Christ, is used three times as often as the phrase, the death of Christ. Normally when the death, when the sacrifice of Christ is spoken of in the New Testament, it is in terms of the blood of Christ. And so we need to see why this imagery of the blood is so important, and we secondly need to see what the blood achieves. But there are some issues, perhaps some problems for us to navigate as we get into this theme this morning. The first one is just our discomfort with blood. Uh, last weekend, I made a classic DIY mistake and took a slice out of my thumb with a saw, Merely a flesh wound, but it bled a lot. But when I went into my house, none of my family wanted to look at the blood. There was a literal physical turning away from the blood, because blood is offensive to us. One of my favorite fruits are blood oranges. In February, Sicilian blood oranges come into the UK. It's about the only thing that makes February worth living, to be honest. <laughs> and, and I absolutely love them. But I've noticed that increasingly stores are relabeling them as blush oranges because the notion of eating blood is strange and offensive to us. 
And there are very practical reasons why we feel so squeamish about blood. I mean, life basically is much less bloody than it used to be. We live in a society which is less violent, less dangerous, and more sanitized than previous societies have been. And uh, we just don't see blood. If you are a meat eater, you don't have to witness the reality of what that involves. You just buy your shrink-wrapped stuff from the supermarket. Unless you work in A&E or in an abattoir, you don't see much blood. And that makes the sight of blood shocking to us, because we're just not used to seeing it. There's, of course, an irony in the fact that so many people play such violent video games and watch so many gory movies. That's a kind of another thing we might explore on another Sunday, but that's a problem. We have this discomfort with blood. Just the thought of it, the sight of it, makes us want to turn away. Second issue is, I think, our, our poverty of imagination. Uh, Grace, my wife, teaches English at the boys' school here in Poole, and of course, as part of that, she has to teach poetry. And you may well remember this yourself from your school days. What is the point of poetry? Hardly anybody bothers to read poetry these days, and trying to teach it to a bunch of teenage boys can be challenging. What is the point? Miss, why can't they just say what they mean? What's all this poetic language? Why can't... Ah, what's the point? What's a waste of time? That's the kind of the normal response to, to poetry. The thing is that the cultures in which the Bible was written and the literary forms that the Bible draws upon are heavily poetic. They're full of metaphor and imagery. And so if we're to understand what the Bible says and the language it uses, we kind of need to educate ourselves or re-educate ourselves in that kind of language. And previous generations were better educated in the language of poetry than we are. Our spiritual forebears could sing hymns with lines like this, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. It's not the kind of hymn that we use anymore. And we actually need to learn to speak more metaphorically, to understand the way the Bible is written, and to see how the language the Bible uses represents greater realities. And so the New Testament often speaks about the blood of Christ, the blood of Christ. But it doesn't do that in a way which is at all gory. The, the, the Bible doesn't actually focus on the blood. And when you read the accounts of the crucifixion and sufferings of Jesus, actually there's very hardly any description of the physical sufferings of Christ. But the New Testament is very graphic about what the blood represents and what the blood achieves. And so we need to be both less afraid of the blood and also, in a sense, less literal about the blood in order to see the greater meaning of the blood which the New Testament is describing. We need to be able to speak of and sing about and pray about the blood as the Bible does and as our spiritual forebears did. And over the years, I've heard far too many preachers, trendy preachers, condemning other preachers for talking about the blood. You can't talk about the blood. What does that mean? What does it mean to people who don't know anything about the church or the gospel or Jesus? The issue is that, yes, because of our culture, we need to explain what the blood means, what the Bible means when it talks about the blood. But without the blood, we just don't have our faith. Without the blood of Christ, the church has not been purchased. Without the blood of Christ, we have not been ransomed. Without the blood of Christ, there is no purity and holiness for us. We have to declare the blood. 
So let's read our passage again and then try and unpack that some more. Hebrews 10, verse 19. Brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. The writer of the Hebrews says that we enter by the blood. It's by the blood that we are enabled to enter into God's presence. It's by the blood that we are counted worthy before God. It is by the blood that we are acceptable before God, received and welcomed by him. And the focus of this letter to the Hebrews is the contrast between what is described in the Old Testament of the priestly sacrificial system and the work of Jesus Christ. It's a contrast between what was partial and what is now complete. Our subheading for this series is delighting in the finished work of Christ. And that is what the letter to the Hebrews is all about. Delighting not in a work which is partial or incomplete, but delighting in the complete, the finished work of Christ. And it has always been sacrifice that enables sinful people to come into the presence of a holy God. Now, why is that? Well, let's start by thinking big picture about what sacrifice is and what sacrifice achieved. Really, the essence of sacrifice is that something of value is relinquished in order to gain something of greater value. You give up one good thing in order to get a better thing. And so we could think of this, first of all, in terms of delayed gratification. There's a classic psychology experiment, the marshmallow test, in which young kids are offered a marshmallow and they're allowed to eat it, but they're told if you wait for 15 minutes rather than the one marshmallow, you can have two marshmallows. And when this test was first done, they put these kids in a room and you got full permission to eat the marshmallow, left them alone. If you wait for 15 minutes, when I come back, you can have two marshmallows. Two-thirds of the kids scoffed the marshmallow. One-third of the kids waited the 15 minutes and got two marshmallows. Now, the amazing thing is that 12 years later, when the researchers went back and studied those kids 12 years on, the greatest single indicator of their success in life, more significant than IQ, more significant than socioeconomic background, all that stuff, the most significant indicator of how well they were doing in life was whether or not they had been able to wait the 15 minutes and get two marshmallows. Delayed gratification has incredible results. The ability to delay gratification, to sacrifice, is one of the surest paths to success. And we human beings have learned this and we've embedded it into our social systems. That's true from primitive tribes through to pension fund managers. Delay gratification, be patient, wait. Actually, that's the whole mechanism, really, by which civilization grows by not consuming everything today, but by sacrificing some stuff today so that you will have more tomorrow. That's how civilization advances. 
That's a real challenge in our culture because we live in a consumer society which trains us in instant gratification. But that's a false offer. And I think it's probably part of the reason, and this is another Sunday, why we're such an anxious society. Because rather than knowing how to delay gratification and wait, we want it all now, and when we can't, we don't know what to do, or we just eat the marshmallow and have too much sugar and we don't know what to do. So delayed gratification is part of the picture of sacrifice. Another aspect to sacrifice is about generosity over self-serving. It's about actions that make life better for everyone. Uh, Fleming Rutledge in her book puts it this way. Even in this old world ruled by sin and death, who would want to live a life of utter selfishness? To show any sort of care for others at all, some sort of sacrifice is necessary every day. To be magnanimous instead of vindictive, to stand back and let someone else share the limelight, to absorb the anger of a teenager in order to show firm guidance, to be patient with a parent who has Alzheimer's, to refrain from undermining a colleague, to give away money one would like to spend on luxuries, to give up smoking, to bear with those who can't give up smoking. All such things, large and small, require sacrifice. What would life be like without it? Sacrifice makes life better for all of us. It means that we give something up, give up our own self-centeredness in order to bless other people, and actually that makes the whole world a better place. Another aspect of sacrifice is that it is costly, but it can be very empowering. And actually, there's an important distinction we need to see that sacrifice can be something which is imposed upon you. You are forced to sacrifice something by somebody, or it can be something which is freely given. And we've seen something of that over the past year of the pandemic. Uh, The Prime Minister is always talking about the sacrifices we've had to make, and that's true, but there are different kinds of sacrifices. If you're under 50 and healthy and you choose to have the vaccine, that, in a sense, is a sacrifice. If you're under 50 and healthy, you're more likely to be hit by a bus than you are to get seriously ill from the virus. But having the vaccine, what do you risk? Well, there's some sacrifice. You might get a sore arm and feel a bit fluey for a few days. But it's something you do for the good of the whole of society, because the more people who are vaccinated, the healthier we're all going to be. And so it's worth making that small sacrifice. That's a chosen sacrifice. That's somewhat different from some of the other sacrifices that have been made. A young person who's been told they can't go to school or college, can't see their friends, have to stay inside the whole time. That's an imposed sacrifice. And so there have been all kinds of sacrifices this past year. Some have been freely given, others have been imposed. But the freely chosen sacrifice is often an empowering one. When we willingly give ourselves for others, That can be powerful. And that kind of sacrifice, even when it's costly, doesn't leave us any poorer. If we choose to sacrifice for a greater good, that doesn't leave us poorer. Actually, that leaves us richer. It empowers us. It's the same principle as the sacrifice, the discipline of learning a skill which requires sacrifice. You give stuff up. You don't do some things in order to be able to learn to do this thing. It's a sacrifice which is costly, but which is empowering. So the big picture about sacrifice is that it's costly, but it reaps many rewards. 
And we need then to take that big picture and turn to the specifics of the sacrifice of Christ and why it is that the New Testament so often talks about Christ's sacrifice, about his blood. Now, the Old Testament gives a detailed instruction about the sacrificial system, and that's the contrast that the writer of the Hebrews is describing, the contrast between the Old Testament sacrificial system and the sacrifice of Christ. The Old Testament talks about the temple and priests and different kinds of sacrifices of grain and oil and incense and doves and lambs and cattle and sacrifices for different things, sacrifices made for sin and sacrifices made to be in fellowship with one another and with God and sacrifices which are made of as a declaration of praise. And those sacrifices, that sacrificial system was different from the sacrifices made by the other nations, by the peoples who did not know the Lord. They sacrificed as well, but their sacrifices were made to false gods, whereas the people of Israel made sacrifices to the living God. And there's always this choice. Every culture demands it. Every culture demands sacrifice to something. Who are you going to sacrifice to, or what are you going to sacrifice to? Are you going to sacrifice to the gods of the surrounding culture, or are you going to sacrifice to the true gods? And the Sacrificial system described in the Old Testament is all about the people's relationship with God. It identifies a problem. The problem is that there is separation between God and people because of human sin. Because of our turning away from God, we are separated from God, and that is a problem. But there is a solution, and the solution is sacrifice. Our sin, our turning away is costly. It costs something. Actually, it's cost us the difference between life and death. It's a life and death issue. And a life and death issue needs a life and death answer. And that is blood. Blood is the ultimate payment. And the blood of the sacrifice demonstrates the seriousness of the problem. That this separation between God and humans is really serious. And the thing is that apologies can come cheap. In our society, it feels like everybody's apologizing about everything all the time. I'm male. I'm so sorry. I'm also middle-aged. That's actually terrible. And I'm white and middle class. I'm an awful person. And I'm not a vegetarian. How bad can it be? I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But often those apologies don't seem to mean anything. People apologize for everything the whole time, but it often doesn't seem to mean very much. But blood is serious. When blood is shed, that is serious. And the sacrifice, the blood, shows that it's not enough to say, oh, mistakes were made, or I didn't mean to, or I forgot. No, sin is much more serious than that. And the blood sacrifice changes things. We often use the phrase, God accepts us just as we are. And there's some truth in that, yes, but actually that phrase can obscure a greater truth. That without the blood of Christ's sacrifice, we could not enter into the presence of God. There has been a sacrifice that changes things. There's been a sacrifice that changes us. And the sacrifice of Christ, it contains all those aspects of sacrifice which I've described. There 
was a sense in which Christ's sacrifice involved delayed gratification. Told in the letter to the Philippians that it was for the joy set before him that Christ endured the cross. And the sacrifice of Christ was empowering because it was a self-given sacrifice, not an imposed sacrifice. But the sacrifice of Christ is also radically distinct. And it's truly revolutionary because the sacrifice of Christ was for not the righteous, but the unrighteous. It wasn't for the good guy. It was for the bad guys. Often you hear kind of old soldiers talking about the sacrifices of their brothers in arms. When November comes and we have Remembrance Sunday, we talk about the sacrifices of those who died in the service of our country. But if we think of Christ's sacrifice in those terms, we completely miss the point. Because Christ didn't die for his brothers in arms. He didn't die for the good guy. Christ died for the enemy. That's what's described in Romans 5. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man. But Christ died for us. The blood proclaims a crucified Messiah. It proclaims that God himself has made the sacrifice. It proclaims that he was both the priest and the lamb. He was one, the one who both offered the sacrifice and was the sacrifice. And it's by his blood that we have confidence to enter into the presence of God. And so we shouldn't be ashamed or nervous or embarrassed about speaking of the blood of Christ. Like our spiritual forebears, we should be able to sing and pray and shout, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. We need to see what the blood enables for us and demands of us. It means that we have guilt-free access into the presence of God. The sacrifice is sufficient. The blood has opened the way. This is good news for us all. It's good news for us who know Christ Jesus. To be reminded again, there is nothing which would keep us from the presence of God. The sacrifice has been made once and for all. It's good news for those who don't yet know Jesus. There is a way to come guilt-free into the presence of God. There might be all kinds of places that you can't get access to which you'd like to. All kinds of places you would love to go and you're not allowed for one reason or another. Maybe now because of COVID restrictions or other reasons, that backstage pass you've always wanted and never managed to get hold of. There might be all kinds of reasons why you rightfully feel anxious and why you understandably feel regretful and why you should, yes, feel guilty. But... By the blood, we can come right into the presence of God with the full assurance of faith. It's the blood that opens the way for us, not us in our actions, in our history, in our thoughts and desires. His blood is a faithful promise that then calls us to faithfulness as well. It says, do not swerve, hold fast. You know, it's easy to swerve in our faith. There are so many things, so many hazards in our way, so many things which confront us in life, which might cause us to swerve from the truth of the gospel. 
The other week, I was uh, coming down the ferry road in Studland, and in front of the car in front of me, three deer suddenly leapt across the road. It happens all the time. There's so many deer around nowadays, and it's so dangerous. But swerving to avoid a deer leaping across the road is just as dangerous. It's when you swerve that you go into the car coming the other way. It's when you swerve that you end up in the ditch. Do not swerve. Now, Jesus didn't swerve. He was faithful to the cross, to the shedding of his blood. And so we need to trust in the blood and not swerve. You see, there's also a commitment to one another here. We are now God's covenant people. We're going to take bread and wine in a few moments, take communion together, celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's a sign of us being members of the covenant people of God. And the writer here says that we're to consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. There's an intentionality that we're called to, to, to towards helping each other do what is good. People who've been saved by the blood of Christ are to demonstrate the reality of that in our lives together. And this is something which we don't just do on our own. This is something which we do do together, which is why the writer says that we're not to stop meeting together. Now, there's an awful lot we could say about that as well in light of the past year. But the point he says here is don't stop meeting together. Why not? Because it's as you are together that you are able to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. We are a blood family, a covenant people, joined together, united Sealed by the blood of Jesus. Our theme for this year at Gateway is adventures in generosity. And, and really that's, that's a, a spur for us. It's an encouragement to us to think about how we can help one another towards love and good deeds. Generosity is such a key part of that. Jesus has been generous towards us. His sacrifice, his act of unbelievable generosity. How in turn do we respond by being generous towards others? And then we're also to be a people in which there is a culture of encouragement, encouraging one another. And this isn't merely a kind of contemporary, oh, you're such a lovely person, or oh, you're such a precious princess. It's not that kind of encouragement primarily that's being described here. It's the encouragement to covenant faithfulness. Encourage one another to hold fast to not swerve, to trust in the blood of Jesus. Encourage one another to trust in the blood by which we have access to God with full assurance of faith, by which we have been purchased, by which we have been cleansed, ransomed, and made children of God. In the early 1970s, some documentary filmmakers made a film about homeless people sleeping around the Elephant and Castle in South London. And uh, the composer, Gavin Bryars, was part of that team. And when he got back to his studio, he found a bit of tape, which wasn't used in the documentary, but was a tramp singing a short and very simple refrain. And no one knows who this tramp was, what his story was, but uh, Gavin Bryars set that refrain to music. The original piece is 25 minutes long. There was a later version, which is an hour and a quarter long. I often listen to that as I'm preparing messages just really helps focus me on the blood of Christ. This is what the 
sang, Jesus' blood never failed me yet. Never failed me yet. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. This, thing, this one thing I know, for he loves me so. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. Never failed me yet. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. This one thing I know, for he loves me so. You know, our human lives are stories of failure. I've got so many failures in my life. There's so many skills I don't have because when I was younger, I was not prepared to make the sacrifices to acquire those skills. There are so many situations in which I have not done as well as I should have done. There are so many people I have let down in ways I should not have done. And there have been so many people who failed me. been so many people I thought I could trust who it turns out I couldn't. But Jesus' blood never failed me yet. Never failed me yet. Jesus' blood never failed me yet. This one thing I know, for he loves me so. Lord, we thank you for your blood, which has never and can never fail us. And I pray today, I pray as we come and take communion now, I pray that we would know again the miracle of that sacrifice made for us and all that it means, our access into the presence of God, that we, despite all our failures, our anxieties, our regrets, our guilt, we can stand before you fully confident, unashamed, welcomed, received, embraced, and loved as members of the covenant people of God. And so I pray that you'd help us. I pray you'd help us this day to encourage one another and spur one another on. We'd remember who we are. We wouldn't swerve, but we'd be faithful just as you've been faithful to us. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. We bless you, Lord, for your amazing sacrifice.